0: Welcome to Coffee and Change, I'm Bill Kirst. As a business professional, a
1: US veteran, a lifelong learner, and an active listener, I help others navigate, understand, and adapt to our ever-changing workplace and world.
0: As a third culture kid, I call many places home. Presently, Seattle is where I explore my creativity through the power of words and images.
1: In this podcast, we journey with our guests gaining knowledge and inspiration from their stories.
0: Have you ever met someone that could bring a whiteboard to life? You know the type of person who lights up when they grab that marker and start creating and connecting new ways of living and working in the world? all in that limited canvas with an unlimited imagination for improving and doing better. Our story today comes from one of those unique beings on the planet. Donald Van Dyke is a change and transformation leader who I had the pleasure of meeting in an interview almost six years ago. And while the interview began in a traditional way, I knew there was more story ready to burst out of this exceptional candidate I was meeting for the first time. And so with that, I handed him a marker and let him take to the whiteboard. In that moment began a great friendship when the student became the teacher and the opportunities to influence change using one's story unfolded before us.
2: Interesting couple of weeks since our last talk, right? We've uh, we we left the, our last conversation with the uh, with the tattoo, which was always, which is into your perspective. Yeah, and even more interesting is speaking about kind of uh, you know I'm in a transitional position where I'm you know kind of switching companies, moving into kind of a new uh, point in my life when it uh, as it comes to goals and expectations and kind of what's important. And at this, on the same token, I just in the commercial real estate business that I'm, uh, that I'm owning and managing now, we had to upgrade our, our uh, internet and which is why I was hoping this would work well. <laughs> and the, the person who came to upgrade the Comcast ended up being my best friend up until fifth grade. Like just childhood friend from West Seattle that I grew up with, like stayed at his house up until like middle school. And so we, you know, he we, we weren't sure if we were going to catch up or not, but we ended up like sitting here and just catching up on life. He has twins, which is crazy, crazy world. He has twins himself and, uh, you know, our generation, our parents are very similar in generational perspective and, and that, and it was just a, it was an, it was an interesting experience because typically right when, you're t- when you talk about your past and you talk about when people ask, oh, where are you from, what you do, you don't have, for me at least, I rarely have someone who knows me from childhood, who saw me as the um, younger you know, elementary school kid and knows my history, my background, where I came from. So watching him respond to what I've done and I've, where I've gone in my life based on a very different perception was an interesting experience, right? Because most see me as that, you know, uh, the consultant professional who's usually in a dress shirt or, you know, a suit or things like that and sees me in the working world, the professional world. And he's, you know, he saw me as the kid from high point, you know, you know, struggling to get by terrified of his father and like playing sports and didn't have any friends. Like he saw me as that person. And then, seeing that filter through as we're having a conversation was a um was great it was it was interesting and uh humbling in all the same time uh but uh but it was just kind of serendipitous in the sense that I had the opportunity to like kind of rewalk through like what I've done the last you know 25-30 years since we since since he and I were close
1: so so just so I'm like understanding this correctly so you had ordered like You know, Comcast service Mm kind of upgrade or whatever. Did you know that the person, the technician that was coming, was this person beforehand, or this person showed up and you're like, I know you, or that person's like, I know you?
2: Yeah. No, exactly. So I, I had no idea. I had no idea. Right. Because you don't get like a text
1: saying you don't get a text or
2: anything. This is the person. So he had known we had connected. I ran into his younger brother via Uber like six months ago, and we had one had one phone call to like connect and like. Catch up a little bit, but that was you know we thought that was kind of going to be it. We, with COVID, it was going to be hard to catch up, and so I'm, at per usual, doing ten things at once. Right. Open the door. I'm like, okay, I'm going to show you the office. And I turned around, and uh, I was like, I'm going to show you the office. I'm going to step out, and then he, he did move, and I, I kind of looked, and he and he and he slipped his mask out, and I was like. Right. And it was it was just oh man wow. like how's it going I haven't seen you in thirty years like it's, wow. you know longer than that like what's going on yeah um so it was cool it was it was it was uh it was a great opportunity and I ended up being his last his last appointment so yeah. uh because we were pretty simple I mean we're a small shop so yeah. it, it, he was like oh well I, I planned three hours for this so let's get this done and catch up so
1: so I I can't like I can't even imagine if somebody. I mean, let's say... And it's so interesting that you mentioned this, Donald, because I've been watching the Real World Homecoming reunion. I don't know if you've heard about this, but the first season of Real World was 30 years ago, essentially, in New York. And I think I remember watching it that first season, and I was definitely in high school, and it was kind of a big deal. It was like 90, 92, 91, 92. And... Um, and so i'm watching it and it's 30 years later and these people are now in their 50s and they come back to new york in the middle of the pandemic and they all go to the same loft and they all you know are are basically connecting again but what i found really interesting and it's a little bit contrived i'm sure it's a little bit of production you know and you get to watch them revisit like the things they said and who they are and more importantly how the world informs them if I had to talk to someone that I hadn't talked to in 30 years. Like, where do you begin?
2: I, that's exactly where we were. we were. Like, he literally asked the question. It's easy, right? He asked the question. So, wh- like, what have you been up to? <laughs> it's like, all right, how do you unpack this? And in a and unfortunately, my my immediate right because you kind of go through these quick like, what do you say? How do you do it? And my first was. You know when we have the corporate events and you're trying to get to know each other and they fill the cards like, "Alright, tell the five things interesting about you." And you do like the hit list and I started going through like, "Okay, you know, business owner, traveled 37 countries, you know, played some minor sports, like then change management done this and then I stopped and I was like, "That is not the answer. Like that 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 is not what this is." Like so I started with what's important. He was like, "Well, we welcome twins in April." <laughs> That's crazy. I mean, amidst COVID and we've got, I've got three boys, three and under. And right. It was, I found myself just going, you really recognize what's most important. And all of a sudden you start prioritizing what is most important in your life. And that's what you want to talk about. And then that's, I found out he had twins and we kind of talked about family life and, and just catching up there. And then we went to the next thing that we went to was, we talked about school. He, he homeschools his children which I, I was very intrigued by. It was a very interesting perspective, especially now the transition to COVID and and how how are they handling that and is it and um and he asked me if I liked Lakeside where I went to high school because we were right, we were public school, the same public school all the way up through middle school. And I noted and we, we kind of laughed about it that we were like best best friends until middle school. We weren't best friends in middle school because I wasn't a cool kid. I was the quiet, work way too hard because I was terrified of my father, get A's and everything, first in everything. And it, quite frankly, in public school, that really pisses people off. People, people aren't happy about that. And, uh, and I didn't have a lot of friends. I was awkward. I was quiet. And he was the popular big sports star, very social. And I, and I was kind of the guy that, like, he helped out. And then as middle school went on, I just kind of filtered to the back because I didn't fit into the social uh, the social category of public school of Denny Middle in, in the middle school, which is part of the reason I wanted to get out so bad. And so we kind of lost, didn't really hang out anymore. I mean, my middle school, was 11, I think it was 1,100 kids per grade. So, right, like, you just kind of lost each other in that. And then he asked about Lakeside and how that how that was for me. And my my first response was, well, it led to me meeting, and um, and being involved with the man who made the, the biggest impact in my life, which was my father. And um, but, and it was some great life learnings, but generally speaking, very difficult. Like I struggled 100% and almost dropped out multiple times. Um and so you know and like you said we just started start kind of talking through that and driving through what that was and kind of went up through the, the different aspects of what I did from that point forward which was a bit of a roller coaster now now thinking about it so yeah. um it was interesting
1: so he had three hours set aside to help with setting up the internet obviously he said you didn't take three hours to set up the internet you guys ended up talking you both have twins. How did you guys leave it?
2: Um, So we left it with, uh, it was interesting, it ended up being, one, it ended up being me a lot of talking, which is interesting, Um, because he had great questions, and we were just kind of, kept going, and and it ended with, uh, I learned a lot about him, and his homeschooling his kids, because I was very interested in that, and he, how he turned, we talked about, the last conversation was about life-changing. So what, how did we get out of where we grew up, right? And we both grew up in very kind of ominous, struggling situations and uh, for varying degrees. And how do we get out of that? And the fact that that, that kind of dragged through our adulthood and it wasn't until our adulthood that we dug out. Um, for me, it was in twofold, right? It was the traveling, Right. So I did I did the first trip to Southeast Asia where it was like conquer fears, travel for the first time. And then the three month trip to South America where it was uh, we talked about this. Right. It was the buy a ticket into Colombia, go to the airport, recognize you can't leave Colombia without buying a ticket out of Colombia. So in the airport, sat there and decided, well, Uruguay sounds good and just bought a flight out of Uruguay three and a half months later backpack tent and soccer ball and said hey here we go and that was my with clearly the help with my father ken it was yeah it was my how do i get out of this cycle how do i get out of this what do i do and we talked about uh that experience and um and his was his faith so he found faith and he's doing um he's preaching it's a very specific type of um work uh type of like um christianity that he's working on what it means to him and I don't consider myself particularly religious, but I was raised Roman Catholic, and I'm very interested in how the impact it and and how faith has an influence on people's lives and what it means, right? My foster father was uh, in the in the um, um he was in the church to become a priest in the monastery for 23 years, and then had to start over, had to change, and um, so we talked about that, and we left it with. Um, he gave me, he, uh, gave me the, um, link to one of his, uh, sermons and we said, Hey, at the end of when COVID wraps up for things, to get comfortable, we got to get the kids together. We got to go. Cause he still lives in West Seattle. Um, and, uh, and we kind of lifted it at that and we just said, you know, let's, let's make this sure. This is not a high buy, right? This is, we were, um, uh, there was a lot to unpack and I think it was, um, in that amount of time, I think a bit overwhelming for both of us, because we weren't, you're always, when you see that, it's not like the show where you're sitting down, you know, you're going to have it, you never really know, so we were unpacking a lot in a short amount of time, and it was like the, your, your um, best hits, right, of what you're doing, and it's not, and you're not really diving in, you're just saying, well, like, when we talked about South America trip, like, all the, you know, at some point, I was, on a cargo ship going into the Amazon and on a, you know, on a, on a hammock or when I was, you know, going, going into the jungles in Peru and, you know, South America and stuff. So it was just a hit list. So it was a bit overwhelming, but, um, yeah, but interesting.
1: Sure. Yeah. I can, I can, I, I can understand. I can relate. There's, there's something you said, a couple of things you said there that, um, I'd like to okay. just kind of dig in if I can. One was, you said the, you took the trip to Southeast Asia to conquer some fears. Um, and that sounded very different than the trip to South America, which seemed yeah, almost for a different purpose. So first question, what fears were you conquering on that South Asia trip? And can you give the listeners a perspective of how old you were at the time?
2: Yes, so the Southeast Asia trip, um, I was, 23, 24 maybe, um, and that was, um, that trip was. I mean, the first fear was to travel, on my own, away from Canada and Mexico. I had done one other international trip, or two other international trips. I did one to Nicaragua with a group, it was a leadership group growing up, um, and then uh, Ken brought me to, uh, Rome. And that was eye opening for me. I never thought, you know, as a kid, as a you know a kid from the streets, like oh, here I am in Rome, like wandering, going going to Vatican City and seeing the Sixteenth Chapel. It was phenomenal, and um, and so that was something that it was merely a travel on your own, go to a place that you've never seen before, you've never done before, and learn what it means to um to travel outside of the U. S was one fear second was be alone like how do you that was a big goal how do you be comfortable by yourself i grew up with two brothers and a sister my two brothers and i we grew up in a 10 by 10 room with bunk beds um and then uh when my family fell apart and the kind of state stepped in and we we separated i went to i ended up finding a way to stay up to stay to lakeside which how my father father came in um I had a little bit of time alone, but then I immediately um, uh, became affiliated. And my response to being away from my family was in the world of prep school, going the exact opposite. and on the weekend I was um, I was in a gang for you know four or five years and uh, and so I was never I was always around people. I was always dependent on the collective, the group. So, it was travel outside of the country, right? Place you don't know. Um, be alone, and then um, and then above that, it was, and then the last piece was, be okay with not and amb- with not knowing. I, I woke up in the morning, and said, "Where do I want to go?" I didn't have a plan. I didn't go there, trying to figure everything out and plan everything, because at that point, in my life, I was like marching to a plan. What do I do? How do I, you know, how do I get out of public school? How do I get to private school? How do I get to college? How do I graduate from college? How do I get a job before I graduate from college? How do I get in the corporate world? At that point, I was, I had been uh, part of the maid company doing kind of guerrilla change. which was talked about for about three years and was, you know, just drive myself on the ground. I think I drove for them something like a hundred and thirty thousand miles in three years on a, on a car and so take a break and those are those are my three big things and there were little things like uh, along the way but those are the three big things to yeah. conquer there
1: and and you you mentioned um so you'd mentioned ken ken was your foster father is that right and he was the same gentleman you mentioned who had gone you know had, had basically gone into to to or was he a priest is that right was he a priest for years or
2: yeah. Yeah. So um, so he was in the seminary um, up until he was 22, 23 years old. So you imagine, you know, um, you know, junior, senior in college where his entire life was focused to become a priest. And the bishop at one point just kind of came in and said, uh, I don't believe this is for you. And that was the end of it. He was gone by the the next day, I think. It was a very kind of it was very brutal. It was very brutal for him. And one of the ways that he managed that is he traveled. He had someone who's actually house that I'm, that Ken bought from that I'm now moving into um, is said, you know what, Ken, you need to get away. You need to step aside. You need to get away. Here's some money. Go travel. If you need more, give me a call and I'll wire you. And um, for the listeners sake, um, My, so uh, Kenneth Van Dyke was a uh, taught Latin at Lakeside School for 40 years, and I was his Latin student, and he recognized that I was having troubles at home through my study habits, approached my counselors, and said, hey, how do we help him out? And the counselors came back to him and said, you know, he's probably going to transfer. He's struggling. Uh, he's got some family problems he's dealing with. At this point, I was missing classes because I was working in the afternoons and the evenings, and uh, I was really struggling socially and academically. And um, and so he came to me and said, you know, uh, I've talked to your counselors. If, um, if you ever need a place, I've boarded students before, because I was a boarding school for a long time. Um... um We can talk about it, make an arrangement, and you can stay here if you need if you need a place to stay, so you stay at school. You don't transfer. And at that point in my life I was, oh, I don't need help. I'm I'm good. Well I'll figure it out. Like I'm probably gonna transfer. This is I mean, going from one hour of homework a quarter semester to an hour of Latin a night in that type of a rigor is just not to mention the social aspect, it was just destroying me. And um but it came to that point and uh, the state stepped in uh, I was forced to make a decision and they said you know you're of age you can decide to um, uh, stay or uh, go with your mom in Tacoma I stayed with my, um, my my father until the very last moment um, and uh, there was you know those things where you like see and you see I, I remember the moment when I when when I decided it wasn't gonna happen I needed to leave and um, I came to him and said, hey, uh, I need to be out by the weekend. Uh, is that offer still on the table? I moved in, packed me up there, and it was, in the beginning, it was, you know, uh, a kind of a foster care situation. I was, if you're ready to drop, you're out. Can't be here on the weekends. Can't be here when I'm not here. And it just grew into this fundamentally, uh, you know, amazing relationship where, you know, he took me to Rome. He helped me. Yeah. He, he got me through Lakeside. He got me into college. Um, I took his name in, uh, 2013. Um, he walked me down the aisle in 2014 and in 2017, he, uh, he, he held his, uh, the grandson he never thought he was going to have. Um, so he is, he is fundamentally the most impactful person in, in, in my life. And, um, he passed here in February of 2020. Um, so, uh, so yeah, it was a um, that was the, the lakeside aspect that changed. And he got me, pushed me to travel. He was the one who said, "This is whenever I was struggling, or whenever I was doing something that I was trying to get through." He recognized that I couldn't approach that in the place that I was because I'm not the person to to just kind of typically just sit back. Like I'm always, what's the next step? How do you move forward? How do you be better? Where do you go? And his approach was, well, there's times in your lives you need to step back. You need to go get away from where you where the struggles are, so you can see the the forward. So to go full circle, the South America trip was a response to after getting beaten down by corporate America. I took the Southeast Asia trip, came back, said, you know what? I want to start my own business. And I was in commercial real estate uh, with my uh, foster father working there. And I started a real estate business in 2008. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> God, you know, I had a great business plan, but didn't consider the economy falling out. And um, when you start your own business, especially in real estate, the first three years, you spend your time thinking, this is hard, but you know what? It's going to get better it's hard right now, but it's going to get better. And I mean, it taught me a lot about business in that, in that, in that era. At some point, I would say I hit my lowest when I was the first winter of my real estate, of running a real estate business. Um, I was getting sales and in order to make ends meet, I was standing in front of Brookstone selling remote control helicopters. And it was like, Hey, you gotta, you gotta make ends meet. And uh, was, I mean not embarrassingly but made a significant amount of money doing so and uh, realized it's actually realized when I was going to start moving away from sales because I didn't like the person I was in sales um, but it wasn't until I started making money and all my referrals, all the hard work, everything was coming in that I sat back and said I'm still not happy the money is not fixing it I don't what, like, my entire life was just to that point was it was literally just don't be poor, so make money. That was my goal. And all of a sudden, I was doing well, it was being successful. I met my who's now my wife. And in the middle of uh, doing my, you know, doing really well, I, just, I, I came to the conclusion that this is not the life I wanted to lead. I saw myself 10 years down the road. Um, stepping away from the dinner table because some buyer called me and I wasn't willing to give up on a sale And I was like this is not this is this is not who I want to be so I I approached Ken with this and and said you know what I, I think I'm gonna do it I'm gonna travel again I gotta I gotta reset this and somehow convinced my now wife that I could leave for three and a half months to South America and that trip was the other one was to come over fierce that trip was to, to reset that was a get back to what's important and just get away from everything get as far away from people get as far away from distraction Southeast Asia was um, by myself and traveling on my own but I was around people new people traveling every day doing ridiculous parties and things like that and hikes and things this one I mean that was the trip into the Amazon or I went to Bolivia and said Came up to a band and said, "How far east can you take me? Like, how far can I go?" And I ended up in this uh, semi-pata, this little town in eastern Bolivia, where I spent three weeks and, you know, standing in the uh, standing in the lines with the locals getting uh, uh, corn pancakes while they're asking, "What are you doing here? <laughs> why why are you like the the tourism's on the other side?" Um. So that that's what that trip was. It was just come back and reset and out of that trip came the, the inscription from the tattoo, uh, which is based off of a um, Scott Fitzgerald quote, um, which is my version of it is to be passionate and proud of what you do every day. And if you find that you're not, uh, have the courage to start again. And it was, I came back and that was the reminder to, you know, then I, then I kind of shifted full gears in consulting and shifted full gears in a couple other things. And the reminder that no matter what, if you're not passionate or proud of what you're doing, why are you doing it? And if you ask yourself that every day, it's, it's, it's an easy gut check. And you just kind of like, okay, well, if I'm not, then there's no reason not to restart. Right. And the, the original quote is to um, start over. And I know you like words, and we, we always talk about this specifically for words, right? Start again is very deliberate for me because it's not um, – you're not always starting from zero. So many uh, youth that I talk to, and leaders that I talk to, talk about, well, if I start over, like, it means I'm starting from around zero. It's like, no, like, you already – you've or- you've worked so hard to get to where you are. Don't forget that. Don't walk away from that. Just build on it. What's the pivot? What's the move? Um so I'm, again, at another one of those inflection points. But, um, but yeah, that, was, that trip was uh, fundamentally uh, changed the way I approached my career and um, the way I looked at what was important.
1: When you, when you went to Southeast Asia, um, I mean, obviously there were, like, two different frames of these trips. Um, and I, and, and I want to spend a little time here because I, I do agree – you know, I never met Ken, um, but I can, I can sense his, his, uh, influence and his power. We've talked a lot about sort of what shaped him. And I think the aspect of him saying to you and him leading his life around perspective and saying, when you're, when you feel you can't necessarily continue on, you need to step back and you need to go get that perspective and that depth and that space. And, that distance um, and sort of dance between the cultures of what is life and then these answers show up for you. Um, so knowing that, knowing that that's kind of how he saw the world, how he helped you then um, see the world within you, was was Southeast Asia in some sense... Um, Permission for yourself like part one was permission to sort of let go or as you talked about like dropping the fears or facing the fears or you know taking on those fears and I Wonder if part two of that being the South America trip was really about um, Sort of feeling into the new skin of like I don't have to I Don't have to go through the world the way um, I've either been told I have to or the way my circumstances around me are dictating. I mean, you talked about you know, being affiliated and being in the gang. Um, that, to my knowledge, never, never having been through it, but that, to my knowledge, is a lot of conscription. It's a lot of, you will do this, you should do this, you have to do this in order for us to recognize, in order for you to feel a part of something, in order to feel safe. Um, and so I'm curious if that is that kind of how it presented with you? It was like part one was like, I give myself permission to say no to this. And then part two is, you know, now that I've done that, what does it feel like to live in this kind of new skin?
2: Yeah, it's a great perspective. I I don't think I've ever looked at it that particular way. Um, And the way I've always phrased it is, I've always been the one, and you've worked with me is. To, to kind of prove people wrong, right? And I know a lot of people say that and it's kind of cliche. But it really was. And in part of the Southeast Asia was if if you look at it from the permission, yes, but the permission that no. Just because you're from low income, just because no one in your family's ever traveled, you've never gone to Switzerland, you've never gone skiing in the Alps, you can still travel. You can still leave the country and do this and have those experiences no one in my family, uh, my immediate family has traveled outside of, I mean, really Mexico and Canada, maybe a couple here and there. But um, when I did that trip, it was mind blowing. They thought I was going off the edge of the world. They're like, are are you, are you, you're going to die? Like, what are you doing? I mean, this is the, this is the inner city mentality. And that's a perspective that Lakeside provided me was, you know, at Lakeside, these kids, and I talk about the proving people wrong. And it was. At Lakeside, the awkwardness was these kids were such in a bubble, and it's not their fault. But you'd come back from trips, and they're like, "Oh, what did you do? Oh, I went skiing, or oh, I went to Aspen, and I went to you know, um, I went to Europe, and I was like, I went to Safeway, <laughs> like I went to the grocery store, <laughs> like because that like, that was me. I we didn't have the opportunity to do it. Like, I I wasn't gonna sit there and try to play. Like I knew I knew what they were talking about, and so there was this always this feeling of they can do that. Like that's what they do because they are part of that world. I was like, no, there's no reason that I can't be a part of that and I can't experience that. And for my family, it was it, they just just didn't understand it. I, they they were terrified. They were concerned for me. They thought something was wrong, um, especially because I was backpacking and I wasn't like doing a tour. I was just kind of going. And so it was a no. A ghetto kid from the block can. Go backpack, enjoy himself, and and travel the world. It can be done. You don't have to be rich. You don't have to be from an upper echelon to have that opportunity. You just have to create it for yourself. So that was that was that was one of the big big first trips. Step out of that. Um, and to your point, it was um, permission for self because in being a being in a gang, it's it's really about kind of somewhat similar to a kind of kind of a military perspective. I've never been in the military, but the military perspective is, is like the brothers around you. They'll do anything for you. And the issue, but the, the downfall with with um, the gangs is um, really it comes down to kind of pride and respect. And, and, and that's what you live everything off of. And everything is built on that. And the only way that's successful is when you have nothing to lose. Well, with Ken... And with getting into college and with that, I, I had something to lose now. So it was, that was my break. Like, okay, I, I had been a part of it for a been away from it for a while, but this was my step away. This was, okay, now this is, this is, I'm cutting ties. Like I'm completely out. Um,
1: f- How do you do that? I, I, I mean, was, again, I don't, I don't know a lot yeah, about this, I, but I know um, it's not easy.
2: It's not, I, I got, I was in an extremely fortunate situation in that. My brother, who as a part of Ken, when uh, when I was staying with Ken's so and my biological family kind of, you know, fell apart and they were in Tacoma on the weekends when I was not Ken, I was staying at a black family's house on the east side who I played soccer with, the, the oldest son. And I was there every weekend. I'd take three hours bus rides every weekend to go go out there because I couldn't be at Ken's house. And so I built that relationship with them and the oldest son, he was he was like number one on the gang. He put me on, like I watched it grow. We did it, you know, through high, you know, through the ends of high school, into beginnings of college. And at one point, our mother, who she walked me down the aisle as well. So if if you imagine my wedding, I always say I have a very colorful family, it was my uh, my biological mother, who's Filipino, so five foot Filipino lady and then a five-foot-two black woman and then my uh gay foster father so it was like it was like quite the colorful colorful you know modern family right there right and uh but she came into the living room one day and i mean let's be honest little black woman we were terrified of her like you just did not cross you did not cross mom and she comes and looks at us with the most stern face and we had just probably done something stupid i was back from college and she goes, if you lose your college scholarship or you get kicked out of college for this, this stupid gang stuff, I will kill both of you. Like, I don't think you understand how serious I am. And my old brother, or actually he's a little younger than me, but the oldest in that, Julian, he came to me and he's like, all right, let's make this make this happen. And he walked over, and you, the only way it happens is you step in front of the set. And what you call you drop flag, which means you take the the bandana that you're wearing, and you put you drop it, and uh, at that point, like you said, it's I mean they don't play It's blood in blood out like that's serious. But um, it was a little bad, but because he was there, because he was number one, no one challenged it.
1: My skin feels this from the standpoint like the ritual, the way you describe the ritual. I mean, it's it's like this is like tribal, man. This yeah. is like. You drop the flag, yeah. you, you do the walk away, yeah. It's,
2: well, it's, it's, and you stand there and you wait to see what happens. And, you know, there were people that went in and we got into it. And uh, I, I, I came arguably very unscathed in, in considering the perspective I had to then, I mean, I couldn't show face for years, right? You stay away, you walk away. But the what, what it was, was he was able to step in and stop the extreme and essentially set the boundary of no one touches him. He's gone, he's away, I'm giving the okay, he is not to be touched. And that was the only way I could walk away. It was the only way it happened.
1: Did you? I mean, you were in college at this point, so did you just go back to college and kind of...
2: I went back to college and uh, I just, we just, whenever he met, he came over to my house and I just didn't go over there anymore. And we were very particular, like I didn't wear colors, I didn't, I we avoided certain parts of town, like it was just subconscious perspective of wherever we were gonna go. It was like, oh yeah, we can't do that because.
1: Is that still subconsciously with
2: you? Um, it always is, right? It, it it's 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 a it's a it's a lifestyle. Um, uh, but like I tell everyone, every day is a choice, right? It's. I was very fortunate in the sense that I became, I got out of that whole situation. Like, I mean. The number of times I got in a conflict or fights or whatever in like a Safeway parking lot, like or whatever, you, you, I could have easily gotten, you know, picked up by the police, and there went my college, right? There went my job. Um, whereas my brother has two felonies. Right, so it's a choice, like it is a choice every day to do that or not to do it, and at any point I could have caught something and got a got a judge on a bad day and gotten a felony. And so it was at that point when I walked away, it was easy. It was okay. Like we just like, this can't be, you've done it. You've, you've walked away. Like you can't go back. And, uh, so, but that ingrained of reminding yourself how every choice has a consequence. And as much as people was like, Oh, this and that it's like, no, you choose To put yourself in that situation, you choose to put yourself out of that situation. You choose the people that you're around. And to my point of my my friend, who I haven't talked to in 15 years, right? There were people part of that group, and I did it in college as well, where I choose you are no longer I'm no longer engaging with you. But like my brother, he's working with me on my house right now. So right, he's still part of that life and he's trying to get out of it we're trying to find our ways out of it but he right part of the system spent eight plus years in prison and you know multiple times and like so it's it's been harder for him but you know we are at one point we were at the hip doing the same thing the same stuff talking the same way all that perspective on the streets trying to run stuff and now look at us and it was just a couple choices it comes down to a couple choices
1: And I think it also goes back to kind of that aspect of what you were saying before around that quote. You know, it's not so much, I mean, there's the starting again. You Mm -hmm. you know, you always have the right to start again versus the starting over. You know, and even when when you talked about the over, you know, over starts with a big O, which reminds Mm -hmm. us of big zero, right? It's that aspect of like, I got to start from zero. And and even that sense of you don't have to start from zero. Um, Mm -hmm. You can make a drastic change in your life and you don't have to start from zero. So so I'm curious for like from that standpoint, you go back to college, you played soccer, was like sports is a big thing for you too, right? Mm-hmm. So you, you, you did you meet your wife through soccer? Yeah, is met that her on a soccer okay. field, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so so did you throw a lot of energy into athletics at that point? Um, you know, mm-hmm. it, it seems that there's this aspect of, yes, we make choices and we take certain things out of our life. But in order for us to hold that, that boundary, mm-hmm. we sometimes have to fill it with something else. Mm-hmm. Was, was soccer that for you? Was college that for you? Was meeting your wife that for you? I'm curious from, from that standpoint. Yeah.
2: Um, it's interesting that the first time, like I, I draw my perspective on um, right, putting things back in life is having a goal, having like what you're focused on, what you're doing. And how do you achieve that? You take things out and you put things back in and you go back and forth and you have that balance. Well, that changes on what you're chasing, right? And the first time I remember um, being asked, like, what do you want to be, right? They're saying, like, what is your goal? What are you going to put your energy towards? I was sitting, um, we were doing this this outdoor trip with the private school and I was in high school. I think it was my junior, senior year. And you're supposed to, the question, it was a journaling session and they were supposed to, they were sitting, you know, it was a three-week outdoor trip, super, super, you know, kind of embody stepping out, and they said, okay, draw on an image what you want to be when you're an adult. Where do you see yourself, right? And this is stuff you would never, never did in public school, but it was that envisioning thing. It was the idea that you're gonna go to college. Biggest thing between public school and private school. Public school, with my, my buddy and I were talking about, I was like, hey, man, There were limos outside eighth grade. Like, like, get through eighth grade, and if you graduate high school, you're 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 killing the game. Like, you're doing great. That's awesome. Whereas Lakeside was, what college you going to? Not if you go. What college? And I remember talking to the teacher. We're sitting here doing the journaling thing, and I had nothing. I was just blank. And he goes, he's like, "What's like what's going on?" I was like, "Um, I'm tempted just to put a dollar sign." He was like, "What do you mean?" He was like, "I." My goal is not to be poor. Like I', I don't, there's no aspirations to be a doctor or a lawyer or anything like that. It's just don't be poor. like be able to provide for your family. Don't be alcoholics. don't be And he you could tell he just hadn't had to deal with a student who, who didn't understand what it was to have bigger aspirations and had never had someone to be able to like tell you, no, you can go do this, you can do that. That's, it's unfortunate, but that stereotypes pretty accurate. Right when you're growing tough and you're in the food bank lines and you know, you're, you're, you know, paying every other month, every third month on utilities just to keep things moving. Like it is, it's a survival. Like you're not thinking, Oh, hey, let's, let's go invest in my future. It's like, no, let's like make sure we can eat today. Um, and for me, after getting, getting through everything and taking people out of my life, it was, I was the first in my family to really go to college and the sports I actually dropped because I had opportunities to go to a couple of D1 schools, but they weren't like, they weren't like big scholarships. They were like, I was like barely making the scratch and probably not going to play. And I'm a little too competitive to sit on the bench. So I went to schools for D3 and I went there for school. So sports in college was secondary. It was interesting, keeping myself interested because I've done it my whole life and it was important. But I went to school for school, and I went to a school specifically that I knew I couldn't get lost in, meaning I would be held accountable by the size of the school and the engagement required to be there. If I went to D1, I would have played sports, hidden in the background, got some whatever degree, and just grinded away at sports, and I would come too far, made too many decisions, To let that be enough Um, so the driving force for me was make this worth it It it's like you like we have worked so hard to get to college I paid my own way Um, I was working the entire way through college it was get to the other end like from middle school the goal was still get out of public school get to college have a job before you graduate college and be able to start, like, living on your own the minute you, like, that, and it was, that was it, that was, there was nothing else, that's where the energy went, it was get to the other end.
1: You know, it's interesting the way you described the visioning session, Um, and this is something we take for granted, I certainly take for granted, but you described it so well, which is, when someone doesn't have the luxury of psychological safety, they can't, they actually don't have access to the parts of the brain that can dream and vision.
2: They're too busy surviving.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's like, I, what do you mean ten years from now? I'm thinking yeah. ten minutes from now. Yeah. Like, I'm thinking like, how do I feed my kids? Yeah.
2: It, the, the the interesting thing about it was, um, so after after the trip, after the outdoor trip, right? We're three weeks where are and me were camping, and uh, there were a couple elements where he had an idea. Of kind of my background meaning like when all the parents came to prepare for the trip I didn't have a parent that came so like the teacher brought me up to sit next to him because I didn't have engaged parents like my parents weren't there and he was like oh you know he kind of asked me about it. He was like everything going and like all my gear was borrowed right everything was everything borrowed from the school but and then so he he knew I needed help and he knew and he was I, I could tell he was doing his best to to provide the attention and I did have the fortune that my dad loved the outdoors, and my, my biological father, dad, and the, the, my attachment to him was to try to love the outdoors too, and I did. I enjoyed it. We had some pretty extreme situations of, you know, just get it done because he was always drunk. Uh, but after the three-week trip, everyone changes in their street clothes. So everybody cleans up, they're out of their camping clothes, they're out of their stuff, and we're meeting in uh, Moab in Utah. And everyone's still, right, you know, in their Patagonia or their, uh, you know, uh, North Face, and, you know, they're like in their kind of camping gear. And he kind of looks around, he's like, where's Donald? I was like, oh, he's over there. And I was, I mean, Bill, you'll love this image. I was monotone, baby blue sweat outfit, hood on, tennis shoes, and headphones on. And I was just sitting there, just kind of bobbing my head to my music, and just getting back into like my comfort and like where I was at home. And and he and his response—he came over, tapped me on the shoulder, and he goes, "I just wanted to make sure it was you because I would have never thought that the same person I saw a week ago climbing through the mountains in Utah is the the person standing in front of me right now." And it was that kind of split that that my entire high school career was it was back and forth and so rarely did I bring that to lakeside um it was only in my junior late junior senior year but I would do it just to kind of piss people off quite frankly right yeah (laughs) prove people wrong it was like I can be successful and do this too like it's okay um yeah
1: I mean I think it's I think it's it's such a compelling story because it reminds people you know the old adage, "Don't judge a book by its cover," um, but more importantly, you don't know what other people are carrying. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I think it's really interesting because, you know, if you if you kind of fast forward to the work that that you did in corporate America and that you you know continue to to kind of play in this space a little bit, you you and I met, um, and I'm curious, do you remember uh, do you remember the interview process?
2: Uh-huh. Oh, the interview process of the first conversation, the interview process at the office? Yeah, do you remember yes, that? Yeah, yeah, where all of my interviews... Yeah, so <laughs> the interview is so right. This is for the listeners. This is it. And this is a very typically a very structured consulting interview process. And it is, you have a call before the interview with the recruiter and they prepare you. And they say, this interview is going to be, you know, fit. This interview is going to be a case study. This interview is going to be... Uh, you know, X, Y, and Z. And they walk you through it, so you prepare for it. Well, there was only one interview <laughs> that went as it was supposed to be planned for that. And um, I think, Bill, you were, were you three? I think you were I think you were number three. You were after Noah, right? After yeah, Noah. I would
1: think I was yeah, two or yeah. three. So, yeah. so
2: the first one was pretty standard. It was kind of fit and structure and, and very standard. I know we're supposed to do a case study, but we're not going to do that today. And he goes, okay. Now, I'm going to give this to you in five minutes. Put it in the order you think you're going to put, you want, you would present it in. I'm going to come back and you walk me through your thought process. And it was a roll your sleeves up and get it done and just do it. And then, and so that like threw me for a threw for one, but uh, it, it was very much of a perception of what was to come, which was great, an amazing team. And then, I'm, and then Bill, when you came in, it was you had, I remember they give you a piece of paper. And you sat down, and you took a piece of paper, and you just slid it aside. It was like, we're not going to do this. You know what? I read this great quote this morning, <laughs> and you read—I don't, I can't for the life of me remember. Do you remember what it was?
1: Sound Business Journal*.
2: Yeah. Maybe? Oh yeah, I think it was yeah. And you, and you read this to me, mm-hmm. and you said, you know what? I've got this interesting situation that we're trying to figure out. And you talk, you give me this perspective and you say, Hey, this is what I'm looking at. This is what we're doing. Okay, how would you how would you approach it? What would you do? Tell me, tell me what like how you would just in what you've heard, and we had some questions and answer, what would you do? And it was engaging, it was less the here's a case study, give me the responses of what you're supposed to do. I got to get up on the whiteboard and I was like drawing like, yep, this is, this is where we want to go. This is what we're doing. I would, I think these are more important than this. And, um, and it was much more of a conversation than it was an interview. At least that was my, what I remember it being.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's funny because I remember there was something, there was something very, uh, intuitive about the process where I came in and I said, like you described, we're not gonna yep. do this. Like, and I just, I took that script, if you will, and I just slid it off to the side. And something in me said, this conversation does, is not gonna fit in a box. Um, and I think I did. I think I grabbed this article, um, which I had just read. There was some compelling quote uh-huh. in it. And I might have, you know, read part of it to you or d- gave you the quote. And off of that, we riffed right? We, we basically just riffed. And I said something along the lines of, you know, if somebody came to you with this challenge or you read this and, and all of a sudden the person that wrote this article or the or whoever this article is about yes. said, you're hired, what would you do, you know? Um, and I, I don't recall, maybe I, did I leave the room? No. I feel like there was, no? Okay. We just no, stayed, I stayed just in the, there. Yeah. we was, was, was in there and we were talking yeah.
2: because I was asking questions and, yeah. and it was, I mean, I'll tell you, it was the first interview where I didn't feel like I had to check every time I wrote something down. right? I, it's, it's like half the time in an interview, you say something and you pause to see what the response is. And you see particularly younger consultants or those who work new in the workforce, they're looking for that validation. right? You're looking for that, hey, was that what you were looking for? Is that right? And this wasn't like that, which is, which is part of the reason I came. <laughs> yeah.
1: so, so, so our paths cross. Mm-hmm. you you knock the interview out of the park you obviously get hired <laughs> um, we we start doing we start doing some work together um, and that's when I kind of started learning a little bit about your backstory which it was interesting because even in that even in that realm of corporate America and in consulting and you had done consulting before you'd been at a couple you know a couple other companies before that Um uh, but it was interesting to watch you perform so well in what you know and what you do mm-hmm. because it's intuitive. And frankly, it's rooted in some things we've talked about which is resilience and and grit. Mm-hmm. And that's what made you successful and makes people like us successful. But it was really interesting because at the time, I think, and you can keep me honest here, there was a hesitation to unveil to people where that grit came from, yes. and where that resilience came from, and we're we, you know we're now sharing this story here and mm-hmm. recording it and sharing it wider, which is awesome. But was that was that a tension that you experienced then?
2: Uh, yes, across the board. Hmm. Um, it was a there was a feeling, and I how do I say this? I think there is still an unfortunate need to conform to a level. I believe that we are going in the right direction. I believe that the conversations around BLM, around equity and uh, you know diversity and inclusion and everything above we're headed in the right direction. However, and I and I talked to my brother about this who's struggling to get work, the double felon and, and walks into an interview a certain way. It is a there is an expectation of when you walk into a room how you present yourself and how you talk and and that is connects directly to what you have done in your past right so there is an unconscious connection between how you talk today means oh you, this is you learned that because and to an extent they're right because i was polished through lakeside through schools through being around kids, Ivy League students, and how to have conversations, how to defend myself in an appropriate manner because it makes the corporate America comfortable, right? Because when you challenge, and you challenge in a way that they're not used to, you're disarming them. And typically, back then particularly, when you're disarming, especially in an interview, that's never a good thing. Because all of a sudden, they're looking to put you in a box, and you don't fit in the box anymore, and so now you're not even considered. So I got really good at knowing how to present myself in a way that is comfortable for my interviewer. And to your point, where I have changed now, I still think there's a degree of conformity required. Um, it's I, I, it's unfortunate, but I'm it's a second nature subconscious so to me now, because... When I'm in front of certain leaders, like there's, an, there's a certain feeling they want from someone especially consultant that they're getting. But I know now where I can drop things in and where I can provide the perspective and I can say, hey, this is difficult and this is why, right? I can provide that sense of uh, vulnerability, right? By opening up and saying, these are times that have built me and this is why. Um, and I, will, I can do that now. I did not feel empowered to do that then.
1: Does it come back to that psychological safety?
2: Um, yeah, I think it does. I think it's, it's the... Um, but it's... The psychological safety is, in my mind, a difficult... It's a difficult thing to, to work on and to produce because for me as much as someone who's trying to build a safe space for me, I can't tell you if I go and I, and I you want a safe space and I'm completely open and I talk to you about alcoholism, you know, physical abuse, you know, uh, gang life, like stuff like what, what your response is going to be unless you have done it yourself. And so for me, the psychological safety is degrees, varying of degrees, right? Um because I I would argue it's everyone is different and I have a very, as we talked about, colorful background. So I have to choose to what degree is this safety? It's how much should I share? Because at the end of the day, comfort for the other person is so important. Like I'm not in this to make someone uncomfortable and not let them know how to do it, right? People are learning now, like I'm a huge Brene. Uh, Bernie Brown fan, right? She talks about the difference between sympathy and empathy, and I dislike wholeheartedly sympathy. It, I, I fought against it in high school, in college. It's, hey Donald, don't worry, we understand. Um, you don't have to, you don't have to get that done. We, we understand if you're not gonna, if you don't perform at that level. Our response is why, like don't, why am I being held to a different standard? Like, I don't understand. Like, I can do this. I can be successful. And and that's that, you know, that empathy of, I don't know if you ever seen the video of, like, the peeking down the hole. and it's like, oh, it sucks down there, um, you know. But, it, you know, the silver, talking about silver lining, and she, she plays it really well. Whereas the empathy is being in it. And for me, it's so often the uncomfortable, the uncomfortable talking about, for me, vulnerable things about my childhood, what I've gone through is perspective. My perspective puts someone in a place where all of a sudden they go from empathy to sympathy because they don't know what to do. And now it's, it's awkward. Now you're like, okay, I, I don't need you to feel sorry for my past and my history. Um, so it's a matter of, of when you're talking to them, still making them feel comfortable and feeling safe, but knowing that for the most part, there's a line. There's a line there. Like you gotta, you gotta, you gotta tell that line and it's getting better. And more than, more than anything, I'm more eloquent about how and when I look to bring things up and kind of, you know, you kind of test the waters and you do things you don't, and you have people conversations and you do so to make them feel comfortable and reassure that, just because this extreme thing changed my life impactful doesn't mean something that isn't as serious didn't have didn't have as much of an impact on your life it is perspective it is what you've grown up around but i still to this day for most when i start talking about my past cuz it's a, for me it's a dip, somewhat of defense mechanism if you ask me a question i'm going to tell you so be ready for the answer um uh, they, it, it gets to a point where they're just uncomfortable. And, and you just kind of, they, they're like, oh, well, that's so, I just, I, I could never relate to that. Like I'm, you know, well, I'm not asking you to relate. I'm just telling you where I am. Mm-hmm. I'm telling you why I, I look at things the way I do. So,
1: I mean, it's, it's interesting. There's two things I'm, I'm thinking about. One is it, it's got to be exhausting holding that line all the time. For one, because it's it's invisible to the other person, right? They don't know that you're you're sitting here adjusting this line, like, oh, can I? Can't I? Can't I? Mm-hmm. You know, that's got to be exhausting. And I don't say that from the standpoint of you're right, sympathy. I I, I just mm-hmm. think like from the standpoint of caring, right? Like, there's a part of every individual that is depleted by having to you know, constantly wonder, do I don't I? Do I don't I? Can I? Am I safe? Am I not? There's that piece, and then the other piece i'm curious about is i i think i recall and you mm-hmm. can keep me honest here when in our relationship it shifted mm-hmm. uh, was it in dallas that you opened up to me on this i'm trying to remember Sounds There was yeah. we were not in the office for yeah. one we were not mm-hmm. in the office environment which i think is interesting
2: mm-hmm.
1: i think we were traveling together possibly on a client site yeah
2: i think it was dallas yeah
1: and it might have been like it was probably like an after hours thing. We were working mm-hmm. really late, working long, whatever. We had dinner, maybe drinks or something. And I'm curious, something shifted that made you say, I'm going to mer- remove this line or I'm going to go beyond this line.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What was that?
2: Um, and I actually remember we were, you know, we were sitting in, funny that I do, we were sitting in, because we were working in the lobby. Yes,
1: at that's the hotel exactly what I remember. Yeah. Because
2: we were sitting in the front, and yeah. we had a little lobby space, and we were yeah. going over client stuff. And um, for me, it was, um, you had shared something with me. And it was, and it was um, I didn't see it as a test of the water. It was more of a, hey, I'm going to be vulnerable. Like, here's something that's important about me. And it was the, I, we did the same thing. I was like, okay, work's done. And we just like we're like we la- laptops went we're like you know what like let's do this let let's go let let's go over here I forget if we got a drink or we got food or something and we were just like look let's just shut off and up until that point I think the difference was the the approach to it your approach which is why I love your podcast so much it's a let me hear about you and ask questions about you. Not ask questions about your performance, right? So often, and and I and I always tell leaders this: you have to you have to ask about the person, not how how is the project going, or you know, or a fun thing of you know, tell me something about yourself, right? It, it's like wh- what do you want to know? Like I play soccer, like I, like what what's the and so it was the, it was the sit down, the attention, like, like in the beginning of podcast, you know, the act of listening, it is waiting to hear what they have to say without having any type of perspective, what you're going to hear. There's no, there's no, and that for me is the most important. It's knowing that it's not even being judged. It's knowing that there is no expectation at all. Of what's going on you you're actually open to have completely open conversation it's not yeah we're we're consultants after hours no 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 we're friends let's have a conversation um and that was due. and i think that was that for me that was the big that was the big shift during that mm-hmm. conversation
1: yeah i mean i think it's interesting because it goes back to your you know the point you made which is Somebody had to meet you in a place where they made themselves vulnerable and open, in order for you to then say, "Okay, this is this is an opening." Frankly, right? Um, and it makes me, it does. It makes me wonder a lot about leadership as we know it today, and the in the the models of leadership, and and how we're measured and how we perform. And I know that maybe you know maybe it's partly because the way the world is right now. Maybe it's because we've had all this time to sort of reflect on who it is we are and what we want and what's important in life. But I feel that a lot of the old paradigms or archetypes, if you want to use that word, of what it means to be a leader and how you're supposed to show up and perform an act are being tested. Um, But it kind of goes back to what you were saying before, which is, you know, I know how to turn it on for an interview <laughs> if I have to, but I also know how to bring all of me to a conversation when the opportunity presents itself and it can truly shift the outcome direction and potentially benefit a relationship, You know, be it a client, be it a team member, be it a friend. Um, You've obviously gone through a lot of change. You've now got three kids, (laughs) um, yep, (laughs) under three. (laughs) Yeah, Um, you've gone through changes in your career. I think in the past three years as well. Um, What, I mean, what about your perspective? Has not changed, i.e., has Mm -hmm. doubled down and been like, you know what, this is. Mm -hmm. This is still me, and this is, if anything, I'm strengthened in this conviction. Mm-hmm. And then, what about you continues to change, or goes back to that, to that quote that you've got in the tattoo, right? Like I, mm-hmm. I, I reserve the right, or essentially, to restart or start again. Mm-hmm. Um, where does that come in for you?
2: So for me, I will start with a, a colleague of mine who um, was running for project, very uh, intuitive, caring leader, and. He, he left the project with a quote for everyone. And he didn't know me for very long. It was only a couple weeks. But he came off, and the quote for him for me was uh, from Simon Sinek. And it was, we don't learn from our experiences. We learn from reflecting on our experiences. And, and for me, I had to, it, was, it really embodied the idea to your point of it's reflecting back on the choices and what you've done and what you haven't done, who you are, what you're keeping, what you're not, that that is where you learn how do you move forward. So when you say what what do I double down in, um, the one thing that has become a big element of my life, and we, we've mentioned it here and we've talked about it at ad nauseum at some points, is um, is grit, right? I um, it came about because I had a I, a mentor of mine who said, you know, I was stressed about having my first son and I was like, I how do you do this? Like I you know, I don't want to repeat what happened in my childhood, but I want to make sure I do it right. And they told me, you know, if you're a good, caring person, that's gonna come out. This is what's gonna happen. What you should do. And he they had children and they were and, and they said, you No, know, find the one thing that has made you successful that you uh would would say you know it's a big part of yourself and figure out how to take that character trait and bring it to your children. Like do that, focus on that, and the rest of the stuff will kind of fit in. Like what's most important. And I spent banging my head against the wall weeks trying to figure out what it was and it was I knew it was this hustle, I knew it was this fight it's resilience this this idea that no matter what was in front of me right I was gonna I was gonna be successful I was gonna be effective and I was gonna keep moving forward and uh, my biggest thing was it's not enough to get through something but it's enough to be better on the other side which is the resilience and and what it came down to was uh, I watched uh, Angela Duxworth's YouTube uh, our um, our TED talk on grit and they put a name to it and uh and you know grit up to that point my point of view was always just in sports like it was like being that gritty and it wasn't always a good thing like the gritty sports thing wasn't always the best right uh but this was this unknown element of what it meant and i've doubled downed it to the point where like you said i've defined it for myself and part of my personal value is helping others um uncover their authentic grit and i think grit is something a lot like other character traits is Different for everyone. It just because you're gritty doesn't mean you fit the mold of everything else. And what grit means to you. Um, And for me, grit means uh, passion, courage, and resilience. And 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 they're cyclical. It changes. And my double downing again as we evolve this. I now take that trifecta of things that support each other. So be passionate, have the courage to follow it, resilience to keep going, keep doing. And then knowing what your passion is and then having the courage, does it change? And you just keep going is, is what I call that kind of the circle of importance. Because I've recognized that as I've gone through my life, right, priorities change. Earlier on in my consulting career, it was how do you climb? How do you be effective? How do you get up? How do you deliver harder, faster, better than the person next to you? Right Then it became, no, how do you focus on what's important to you? Which at that point was I was learning what change meant. And for me, I connected to that point in my life, change in my profession and change in my personal life. And then what the evolution of how I wanted to help people. And then now, right, as your priorities shift, now it's my family. Now it's how do I have a career and a focus in my life that when I'm 8 hours away from my children every day, I can come back to them and say, "You know what? This is why." And I can tell them that th- this is important to me. It's not just a job. I'm not just doing it to pay because my parents can you know, all of my parents worked hard so that to pay the bills is not no longer sufficient. Like that is not enough anymore because that leads to resentment. If you're doing something just to pay the bills, my father did, and drove him to alcoholism, drove him to present us, to hate his life, I, I, I just, it, that is not enough. That is not a good enough answer. So, So that circle of importance shifts and evolves, and it changes as you go, and that's okay, right? And it's expected. Ken had a perfect analogy that he talked about. You know, when you're deciding where you're going, you kind of think of it as a sailboat. You have, like, in the distance, somewhere you want to go. And you gotta you got to have some sort of goal. So what you're doing, knowing you could change. However, as you're going, you're never pointed directly at the goal. You're always, like, shifting and pivoting with the wind or the tide. And that's expected. Just as long as you're genuinely heading in the right direction, then you can move and you can shift. And so grit has stayed. But... What's evolved is what's most important in my life, and what's important now. Like my shift now is back from is away from consulting and into industry, because I'm much more value and principle focused, and I want to. I'm less about climbing and less about getting to the top of the you know, uh, the top of the pyramid for, in the corporate world. It's do I am I doing what I love? Am I do, doing what I enjoy? Um, and am I working around the people? That that energize me don't take energy away, um, and that I would argue is what has, what has pivoted and changed is those priorities, those values, those 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 uh, focuses, but that that centerpiece that grit has has been like that is my that is my anchor, that's what I come back to, um, that's part of what this is for Ken, and then. Um, And where I've found my kind of personal purpose. And I've like doubled down on it. And kids have made it even, my children have made it even more important to me. Because. If I'm doing my job, they're not going to, they're not going to want for anything. They're not going to need. They're not going to miss out. But you still got to have that sense of grit. So I challenge my wife and I and my family every day is like, how do you, for kids who are going to have whatever they need. Still have that. Because that's what I think made it, made myself successful.
1: Yeah, I mean, if, if if the the ability to imprint that on a human being, imprint that mm-hmm. that balance of grit and you know pivot and flexibility and and being able to sort of sway with the tide, that's a very powerful combination, um, for, frankly anyone. Yeah. Um, and I mean, it'll be exciting to see. And maybe you already do. I'm curious. When you look in your son's eyes, do you see a little bit of that, like spark already? Yeah, or? it's
2: it's different, right? That's why yeah. in my children, like I said, I'm 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 a learning father. Like every day, I learn something about being a father for my children, or right being a child, and and that's where the authentic grit came from. Was it is different for every person, and I see it different in each one of my kids. And you look at them, and you say, okay, he, he he's gonna go about it this way doesn't mean he's any less great. Like he's going to go about it this way. And how do you, right, uh, Angela Duckworth talks about the, uh, you focus more on the effort and the tries rather than the result. And that's a fundamental start, right? Because let's be clear, I didn't get the results growing, up, right? Like it was starting in high school, that was like fail, fail, fail. It was A student in honors public school to D minus student in private school. right? right? And, and it's, and it's that, that cycle, that effort, that trying, that keep going and doing, and, and that's the start. And, but you see how kids respond to that, how people respond to that. And it's the face of adversity is when it shows the most. Yeah. I mean, I love
1: the fact that you even, you even say like authentic grit, because those two things, it's interesting for, for, for those of us that have studied a lot about this and read Angela Duckworth's work and one of the things i always felt with the the grit equation if we want to call it Uh that was to your point it always felt a little like you either have it or you don't Uh and and that always felt a little disinviting to some people including me right Uh i mean being growing up the way i did very different upbringing than you Uh quite polar opposite But then I was in the military, and, you know, you want to talk about the, the, the sort of seeds of grit, right? They talk about that a lot. But there was always an element to it that I was like, but that's not me. Like, like this part's not me. It's not authentically me. And that was always the challenge I, I had with it, Donald, was on, on the surface and in, in its definition, I'm like, yeah, absolutely, I get that. I demonstrate that. But then in, in sometimes it's representation or it's when somebody would recount it, I'd be like, but that's not me. Like you said, there's the, there's the grit and there's the grittiness and there's the sports grit, which you're like, but that's not what I'm talking about. Like, and, and I always felt the image that comes to mind and the sensation that comes to mind um, is, is one of like Navy SEALs, right? Now, I was in the Army. I was definitely not a Navy SEAL, for the record. I could not attack that stuff. But for those of you that have watched or seen some of the documentaries about the Navy SEALs, you know, they have to hold the, the 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 boat up in the water and and, mm-hmm. and you hold it up for hours and hours in their arms, and they're digging in the sand. And I always felt like it was like, man, I'm, if you've ever had sand in your teeth, you know that sensation, mm-hmm. right? It's just like, just, oh man, yeah, it's like grinding, it, yeah. It's grinding. It's gritty. Yeah. And that was always the sort of like aspect where people were like, if, unless you have the sand in your teeth kind of grit, you're not you're not grit. The... And I was like, time out, was, no, yeah. like yeah. I don't need to go choose sand or glass to demonstrate grit. And I love what you're saying here because there's room, you're making room for people to say authentic plus grit. Like each of your sons, each of your three sons can have a different authentic version of grit. And to me, that's way more inviting. And it's probably something that I think there's a huge need for, frankly, to hear whether it's parents, leaders, educators, right latin teachers (laughs) yeah um so as you think about this you and i have talked about this and i'm going to put this out in the universe to hold you accountable
2: (laughs) i like it i like it I, i love this i love this part go
1: you're writing something you're writing about this you're writing maybe a book maybe something else i would love for you to talk about this because I think it's really important for people to hear. I think as people hear it, they're going to be really keenly interested in it. And I think you've hit on something really unique that um, that could help a lot of people. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what that process has been like for you or what, what, what the vision is for you to, to share some of this wider uh, perspective that you've come to in your life as a parent, as a business person, as a traveler, as a foster son, like all of these parts of who you are.
2: Yeah, I think, um, and we've talked about this is, is, is for me, it's, it's, it's going to be putting it down, putting it down on paper. And, uh, and it's a book that I've started. Um, I, I, uh, have set it aside when my foster father died and I have taken over the business and his trust and things and a lot of things and then the pandemic and the twins and lots of stuff going on. Life happens, but, um, uh, I forget where did I got this, but I I, I was reading um, a book for someone and um, and you reemphasize this for all the time, right? It is a sharing of this. I think starts with sharing my story, and sharing of my story is at the end of the day is saying, is for me. Like I am doing it because like for me, and if if I'm the only one that reads it, okay, like hey, it, it's it, it's not a big deal. Um, but in it as a part of it. It, it's 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 sharing kind of the lessons and I think things that people get away from uh, would love to hear and the the authentic grit is a piece of it I don't know how much of a piece is going to be um uh and, you know I think inevitably because it's a passion of mine I can write an entire book just on my perspective and experience with grit um there the the, the challenge for me is there's an actually my friend who said he's got to write a book because it's just a wild ride of stuff that I've done, and 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 I appreciate that. I it's nothing that I think of, and I'm like it's not. I look at it, and I was like, no, this is a path. Everyone has their path. Everyone has their experiences that that makes the person they are, and like how they look at things. Um, but I appreciate that. I think it's something that I definitely want to do. Um, I've for the grit for the grit piece. Um, for me, it is it is I want to do things that are that people want to hear and people are looking for, and I want to stay away from that idea that oh this is a selling model this is something that you're gonna to give to like oh you're gonna make a business out of it, it that's not that's not that's not the point of that, and so yeah when I come to the idea of talking about the authentic grit something that I've talked about of of trying to start doing which I will come to you with your podcast and I do is vlogging. And doing, I've realized that writing is great, but it takes me forever. I'm getting better at the first draft and the second draft and like just writing, but it still takes me a long time. For me, the grit experience and uncovering your authentic grit is thinking about bits and pieces here and there and when things are interesting, when things comes across and looking at them at a different perspective. I've recognized that just because you didn't come up with it first doesn't mean it's not authentically you. Like, it, like, so, and quite frankly, I would argue that for leaders, for organizations, if you step back, instead of starting with a model, instead of starting with the hypothesis, if you step starting with, this is what this company did and what we see as being successful, step back and actually start with what's important for your people and for you. Start there. And a lot of times you come up with something that you're like, oh man, this is this is profound. You do a little research, like, oh, so-and-so came up with it. Great. Guess what? They've taken the next step out of it for you and you can start evolving from it. It doesn't make it any less important. And I would argue it makes it more, it actually makes it more connected because you came up with it. And, and, and it's a, and it's, for me, it's, I, I've talked to other teams, like, well, doesn't it feel good that you came up with something that got published? Like, hey, like, they, they may have come up with it earlier, but you still came up, came to that conclusion. Give yourself some credit. Like, that's, that's profound. That's important. And, and that's where the vlogging comes in for me. It's just... Little things that I learn of, like I, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day and we were just talking about business, struggles of work. I was like, you know, I feel like you, you should, you know, you should start asking more and telling less, right? It was simple. I was trying to come up with something simple for him to say, asking more and tell less. And yeah, I, I, I have no doubt that that's somewhere out there in the ether and people have come up with it. But in the moment, it was easy, simple and something. He was like, you know what? Yeah. What does that look like? How do we do this? And we walk through it and we talk about it. And it was specific to him in the moment. I didn't step aside, go through, find this quote from a book and say, hey, look, here's a model. Right? Um, And that's the point of the authentic grid. That is the point that you can take things that are interesting to you and then find out that, you know, Brene Brown or Simon Sinek or any of these, you know, countless professionals have found this. And, oh, look, it's a resource. Great. I can evolve it. And so the vlogging is my ultimate goal to do, you know, probably like once a week. And it's a, here's a cool thing I read. Um, I come from the fear of posting on LinkedIn because I I feel like, oh, it's got to be, you know, super unique and it can't be, you know, regurgitated. And this is my response to get me past that fear is just to, because writing, I stop because, oh, that doesn't sound right. Getting on the video and just saying, hey, this is interesting. This is why. This is why it's important to me. And then it's start talking through what are the elements of grit and how are all... The goal is to just throw as much stuff as possible of what grit can be. It can be empathy. It can be strength. It can be persistence. It can be like constant resilience. It can be caring. It can be well-being. It can be all of these things in one. It's just does it get you effectively where you want to be in a way that you're lifting those around you? Like The fundamental piece around grit for me is grit is not an individual thing. Grit is not I get where I need to be no matter where everyone else is. And I think that is a misperception. It is a misperception to say, I'm gritty because I beat the person next to me. I'm gritty because I climb the ladder faster than the group around me. I don't know. For me, grit is the ability to be self-aware enough to be empowered with the right tools to lift others around you in the face of adversity, not step on them. And that is what I think for me, grit is. And bringing it to that selfless point of view is where I want wanted to lead. That's that's and it's it's that's that's where I wanted to go, and yeah. I got to figure out how to do it because I don't. Well,
1: know. <laughs> I mean, I appreciate you sharing it here first. First and foremost, yeah. um, exclusive exclusive. I've, you I, know.
2: man, I, I appreciate it. it is I, you know you, you and I have evolved this over years. so we have had yeah, lots of conversations. It, it is it's, you've seen the evolution of this of this process.
1: And it's been a complete honor. I mean when, when we talk about the power of a whiteboard, I mean you and I many times after hours used to just go <laughs> grab one of those markers, and stand at a whiteboard and frankly solve the world's problems yeah. from, <laughs> exactly. from a whiteboard. Um, and I personally am very excited for the vlogs and the pieces of information that you're going to share, because those are going to be mini episodes of what I got to see live in action with a marker and a whiteboard. Um, and now, you know, the, the excitement that comes with that for you of here I am, I'm going to go do this. I'm going to put it on a platform where it can reach more ears, more eyes, but more importantly, more hearts. Mm-hmm. That's the part that I'm most excited about. And I really appreciate you sharing with this platform, because as you know, and we've talked about, my vision with this platform has always been echo the stories that need to be told. Yours is one of those stories. Um, many stories inside that story too. <laughs> um, then it continues to evolve. So. I really appreciate the time where where is the best place for people to reach you look for these blogs you mentioned maybe LinkedIn but have, yeah. you, have you put kind of a, a you know a plan together like if people wanted to reach out to you where's the best place for them to do that
2: um I, I, ha- I haven't yet I think uh I think Bill um being a mentor of mine I'm gonna I'm gonna lean into you to say how do I do this because this is new. This is my wife loves Instagram. She has her Instagram stories and I and I kinda of spin off of what she was doing. And I was like, you know, I I think the video thing is more I wanna go. Um so uh at this point it, 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 I think you're gonna be a condo <laughs> quite frankly. Um because I don't I don't have a place right now to do it. Um um but it's it's a it's a thing that um if anyone ever does wanna reach out to me and they reach out to you, please call. I am, they, I mean, I am an open book. We have emails. You can call me. I am, I, these are things that I am passionate about. I love talking about. I love engaging people who are interested in learning more and becoming better. That, that, that's at the end of the day, right? How do you become a better person? And what, what, what does that mean? And, uh, and part of the reason I love like learning from my own mentors and mentoring others is where I lean into in hard times, And uh, that's what, that's where for the, the, where the grit thing is really grown is, is helping others. And, and that's my, for me, this is the ultimate give back. Right, this is, I have had so many people in my life, so many people who have. For no reason, no need, no expectation of anything gone out of their way to help me become a better person. How do you do this? And um, this is the very beginning of that journey. Of I've gotten to a point in my career and with my family that that I I, I want to do that now. I want to make sure I'm more deliberate about about doing that. So, all that be said, I don't have an answer for that. And, well, what we'll do is we'll
1: here's what here's what we'll do. We'll make sure like in the show notes that I include your LinkedIn link um, and people can find you there for sure as a starting point. And then yeah, let's continue to talk about like some brainstorming between us in terms of. Where's the best place to put that? I mean, I certainly have some initial ideas, but that's not, you know. Um, the great thing is this ecosystem's evolving by the day, and there's so many, so many options you could tap into. But the other piece, and you know this this podcast case in point, um, it's good to take time to really kind of listen with what resonates for you. You know, it, it's often too tempting to be like, oh, there's this latest and greatest shiny thing. I'm going to go do that. If you don't feel it, if it doesn't resonate with you, if it doesn't vibe with you, don't do it. Um, You don't want this to become work. Yeah. Um, It shouldn't be, it it should be, it should be flow. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, that's something that is exciting because you get to explore that and figure that out. And that's where we're at. And, you know, the world's in a new place right now. Like it's, it's a- ever, more
2: ever evolving for sure. Yeah.
1: More democratic than ever to be like, I don't like that tool. I'm going to find another one or I'm going to go start another one. So mm-hmm. I'm excited for, for this, uh, for this journey ahead. And I really appreciate you sharing this story. Um, it's a bit, it's been a long time coming, man.
2: Yeah. you uh, for the opportunity. We've talked about it for a long time. And, uh, I'm just, uh, so grateful to have the opportunity to, to talk on your podcast and to your listeners. And, uh, and, and and quite frankly, Bill, just about everything that you do, like this is, just thank listening you. to the podcast, listening to the information, it is, it is refreshing, in a world of, especially where we are now. So yeah, it's a thank very you. Different perspective. So thank that you.
1: That means a lot. I appreciate yeah. it.